From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Marketing Matters on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Marketing Matters here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Barbara Kahn, the Patty and J.H. Baker Professor of Marketing, and I'm joined by my co-host, Americus Reed, the Whitney M. Young Junior Professor of Marketing and the Brand Identity Theorist. Hello, Americus. Hi, Barbara. You know, so you know, one of the things that's going on right now is the marketing world is absolutely exploding with all kinds of very cool things that we have to discuss as part of our show. We love sort of bringing the latest and greatest topics and those gurus out in the journalistic world who can help us understand what are the good things and what are the bad things that are happening. So what have we got lined up on the show today? Well, we're really excited to have with us a writer for CNN Business, which means she talks every single day about business and has to write incredible. I mean, it's a hard job. How many mm-hmm. stories she writes? <laughs> yes. But we're really happy to have her, Danielle Wiener-Bronner. Welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. And Danielle, what we want to do with you, if you don't mind, is play our hit and miss game. Yeah, the hit and miss game is absolutely fabulous, Barbara, because just like you said, what we're trying to do is scour the frontier for all of the very interesting examples that are going on currently in the business world and in terms of marketing and branding and strategy, brands, products, service organizations. And what we try to do is uncover these different episodes and aspects with the gurus who are out there hitting the streets and covering these stories. And what we try to define is whether or not these specific instances of specific examples that are going on in the marketplace are a hit, which is a good thing, or whether or not these different aspects or examples are a miss, which is a bad thing. And of course, we call this segment of the show Hit or Miss. Hit. Bullseye. Or Miss. Just a bit outside. Okay, Danielle, so you're on the spot now. Let's let's have you... Talk about some of your stories in America's and I can weigh in yes. on what we think it's a hit and miss. We'll play it a little bit differently because yes. we're going to set you up as the reporter of the moment who's talking the guru. about guru. That's correct. The guru. Yes. But you are. We're not setting you up. We know you really are. <laughs> so <laughs> let's start with, we've been talking a lot about Barbie. Um, yes. and Barbie is like Barbie Heimer or whatever we're talking about with Oppenheimer and all this other stuff. It's, it's really, to me, it's amazing. And we've talked a lot about um, the, all, what's happening, and we were surprised about how it's taken off and all this other stuff. But you wrote a recent story about all the marketing dollars and everything that's happening through that. And we'd really like to look behind the scenes and talk a little bit about what's Barbie doing on the marketing side of it, on the business side. So can you bring us up to speed on some of that? Yeah, so it has been incredible. There are just so many brand partnerships with Barbie, I think, Mattel said about 100 or over 100 of uh, partnerships with different types of brands. So, you know, everything from gaming councils to Airbnb to shoes, rollerblades, nail polish, rugs, candles, toothbrushes. So it's really a wide, wide variety of brands that have partnered with Barbie and are sort of kind of riding this Barbie wave Um, I think it's really been an event for people, you know, people dress up and go to the movies, they go to Barbie parties, they um, are dressing in Barbie core. So we see kind of this very large, um, this broad sort of celebration of the Barbie movie, which has turned, I think, into a really uh, sort of unique in the recent past marketing opportunity for all these brands. You know, you've written about this a lot. So I I'm, I want to get your take on this. I mean, obviously, we can both all agree this has been a huge hit. 
But the, the question, and America's asked this on another show, is like, who would have predicted this hit? Like, who would have predicted pink would have covered across all these categories so well? Not only is that hard to predict, like, I think, like, I, I actually, if someone had asked me my expertise, I went, no way. Like, don't jump on this bandwagon. But these people who like it, it, you know, this thing came out instantly. The movie hits and all this stuff is out, which mm-hmm. means they had to make this decision. I don't know, as much as six months to a year in advance before you can produce this stuff to have it ready. What do you think about this, based on your experience reporting on this, made so many people take the bet? Because I think if they had asked me, I would have said, no way. Are you kidding me? Barbie Pink, don't go for it. Yeah. And let me just build on Barbara's question, Danielle, because I see Barbara is, makes this point very interestingly. It's sort of like, what is, what is it about this moment? What, because when you look at the, the prolifer, the proliferation, excuse me, and just the, like to Barbara's point, the massive scale of this, everyone's in on this. Why isn't this coming off like some crazy marketing gimmick? Why is this coming off as something that people are super excited about? And what's going on in the culture that is creating this gravitational pull? Or is it just this one of these things where it's just like Barbara was saying, just pure luck. It's like winning the lottery. I want to back up. I don't want to lose one point. I think that's a really good point. But I also do want they had to make this decision a year and a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they had to look they had to look at to Barbara's point. They had to look at something and say, this is the right move. What is that something that they observed? I think is is the way we think about the question. I think that's a great point because there's a huge amount of risk. I mean, we've seen marketing campaigns that seem totally straightforward and like they're just going to take off and do great kind of, um, you know, sometimes they flounder and sometimes they spark a backlash and that can be uh, even worse for a brand. So one thing, you know, in reporting this recent story, I wrote about Barbie, I spoke to someone, uh, I spoke to a few experts and one of them had suggested, you know, there's this idea of strength in numbers. So if you're going to be a marketer or a brand who is making a bet on this film and on this cultural moment, six months in advance, 12 months in advance, like you said, you know, however long that partnership takes, if you sort of know, okay, it's not just you, it's, you know, these other companies are going in as well, then there's a little bit, you know, it does make it harder to stand out once uh, the products are out and the campaigns are out, but it also gives you a little bit of a yeah. Right, like social not, proof. Ah, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. a good point. So that probably was point. part of their strategy. Yeah. We should yeah. go talk to the Barbie guys and find out. Um, yeah. And that Barbie guy now is trying to do the same thing with Gap. So we'll see right. if that's going to work. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Interesting. And another thing is, you know, some brands have official Mattel partnerships and, and they have, you know, it's very buttoned up, but some I think are using kind of this language of Barbie core in this moment to say, you know, we have a hot pink product that you can... <laughs> use or you can you know, think on our shelf let's pull it out exactly. <laughs> that's, that's interesting yes yeah, so that can be kind of the for the ones who are sort of looking around now and saying okay it seems like a safe bet it seems like an oh, wow. opportunity we can kind of uh take a look at what we already have and just yeah. kind of frame it right like, Ride the coattails. It's, 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 it's no courage. It. You know, they, yeah. there's a lot of jokes about pink and making, but here's pink as a positive. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting too. The brands that, to Barbara's point, what, what you're saying is that now, now that the bet is in and everyone knows that the stock price is super high, here come the, the people that didn't have to really like take any of the risk and they get to sort of benefit from it. That's really yeah, interesting. That's yeah. And cool. I think America's what you were saying about was this just luck? It does seem like there is just kind of a, it's a moment where, you know, it's summer, people are excited about the movies, like there is a little bit of just 
um, kind of kismet in terms of how. But you know, that's not really true. Like you're right, it is summer and people are historically excited about movies. But the last few years, these movie theaters have been empty. The idea that people actually are ready to go back to movies like that was people were hoping, crossing their fingers, but, you know, it still was a bet. They were right. Absolutely. Also to that point, Danielle, speak a little bit. Is there, are you picking up in your writings and your research and in your uh, uh, reporting, are you picking up a little bit of a sense of there's been so much uh, dark stuff, not dark, let me use a different term. There's been so much divisive stuff going on right now in other domains of our lives that we just want to break and we just want to kind of have some fun and like not have to deal with, you know, all kinds of things that we're hearing about in the news every day. Is there a part of that that's perhaps playing into this? I think so. Yeah. And I've heard that a little bit too, that it's, you know, the, the time is right for something as light and frothy and, and fun as Barbie and you know, I guess I should mention CNN is owned by Warner Brothers Discovery, which is, I think, um, but I, you know, I do think that that is probably part of it, that there, you know, things are heavy in the news and it's, you know, that's sort of always true. But I think in, in this particular moment, there is appetite for a shared experience. And actually we've seen it, I mean, with Taylor Swift as well this summer. So it's not just yeah. Barbie. We're seeing yeah. this kind of, this it's kind of pink too. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> seeing this, sparkly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and that has become rare is, you know, I think there are more options for people. You might be interested in some streaming show and you might have seven streaming networks. So I think that when there is something that, uh, and this is something people have told me, when there is sort of an occasion that kind of sweeps up the culture in this way, it, it is, it's fun for people mm. to participate. You know, it's interesting that you bring up Taylor Swift. Uh, and then I do want to move on to another story, but it is interesting, the Taylor Swift stuff, because in some sense, this Barbie phenomenon, Taylor Swift is capitalizing on the marketing power of women consumers or girl consumers, you know, and a lot of times they've been overlooked, but they control a lot of, of the pocket, you know, pocketbook. And so the idea of really giving something that builds on that community and builds a community, which I think is very much a gendered approach, you know, building this community around Taylor Swift or around Barbie or something like that is a incredible commercial success. So I think there's some bigger picture ideas here that we can build on. Let me move, change directions now, just because uh, you've written a lot of stories. So let's go into some of the others. You Chick-fil-A is a brand that we talk about here um, on because it's got an interesting marketing perspective. It's got an interesting branding perspective. But you wrote a story now where they're trying um, new restaurant concepts. So they're trying to change the idea of how you go to Chick-fil-A. Can you tell us a little bit about what Chick-fil-A is doing and how they're trying to change business a little bit? Sure. So what we're seeing with Chick-fil-A is actually pretty common across uh, fast food chains over the past uh, several years, I guess, since COVID really, when they've noticed that more people are eating their meals off premise. So they might be going through the drive-through, they might be ordering delivery. A lot of companies stood up delivery during this period. Um, and I think for Chick-fil-A, they are uh, one of the many who are saying, 
all right, we're seeing that people don't really care about the dining room anymore. They don't need a large restaurant. How can we meet them where they are? And one thing that they are testing out, and this is going to be a pilot test in one location next year, I believe, is just a pickup window. So you order ahead, you go through the app, and then you show up and you basically just take your order. They didn't have that before. You know, I'm not, I don't think they had a dedicated space for it. So I think there was that option, but the Chick-fil-A location that you went to, you, you know, you could walk in and order, and this is more of like a pickup window, essentially. Um, so that's one test. The other is a larger drive-through and that is a four lane drive-through with an elevated kitchen on the second floor. And they've got, you know, this conveyor belt system to get your chicken down to you faster. And that's something that, uh, Taco Bell has experimented in similar ways and others have. So it's really, we're seeing this shift across, um, across fast food chains towards different types of formats, things that, you know, a few, you know, five, 10 years ago wouldn't have been feasible for them. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt, Danielle. That's interesting because I would comment on this because one, if I'm, if I perceive Chick-fil-A correctly, the brand and the unique value proposition, one of the things they are absolutely known for in the QSR space, quick service restaurant space is their powerful differentiation on the in-store experience with the people there. And so talk about how taking that away, but does that erode some of the important equity that they have as an advantage over companies like Popeyes or KFC, et cetera? What are the thoughts there in terms of how that strategy would play out? Yeah. So they've been very careful to say, we are going to uphold our standards of service. You're going to be greeted with a smile. We're going to move you through the line quickly and courteously. And, you know, I think for them, it's really important to, um, to maintain that integrity as a brand in terms of how people see them. And I think you're absolutely right, America, is that this is a really important part of the branding. You know, they have, uh, when there was a um, an annual drive-through survey uh, that came out last year, talked about customer service at Chick-fil-A, almost always gets top marks, even if they're kind of messing up the orders, that actually doesn't really, um, you'd think that it would bring customer satisfaction down, but people feel, you know, like they're treated well at Chick-fil-A and that goes a long way. So I think for them, they're sort of testing the waters here with how can we uh, tweak our formats. And, you know, I think I can't speak for them, but I would think for them, it would be important to maintain uh, that perception of who they are as a brand. So America is hit or miss. What's your vote? Yeah, you know, that's it. I'm torn on this because I grew up in Atlanta, the original uh, spot with the very first dwarf house. And so I love this place. I was just in a Chick-fil-A a, a few weeks ago, Barbara, and the, the service was so incredible. The kid came, comes up to asking, how are you doing? Can I get you another lemonade? It's just like, you're just like, what is this? And so I, I would be very careful. I would say it's, it's potentially a hit from scaling up in terms of being able to get more people, more food, more efficiently. But I would be very, very careful about not compromising this in-store face-to-face experience. So I'm not sure where I stand on this. I'm going to have to get a bit more data on this. How about you, Barbara? Uh, I always lean to you when it comes to Chick-fil-A. You're our Chick-fil-A <laughs> I am. <laughs> you care about. <laughs> I do. I do care about it. So it will be interesting to watch. Well, let me reintroduce our guest. I'm Barbara Kahn, along with America's Reed. This is Marketing Matters. Today, we're joined by Danielle Wiener-Bronner, who's a writer for CNN Business. And she's been writing a bunch of different interesting, timely stories. And we're using her as a, as a platform for playing our hit and miss game. And uh, 
let's talk about another story that you wrote recently, which I think is interesting. Uh, how Bud Light uh, has become the latest corporate bo- boogeyman for Ron DeSantis. Can you want to tell us about that? Uh, that that relationship yes, and what we're yes. doing on that game. Yes. Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, Bud Light has been a topic for months now. Um, you know, they have seen some fallout from a pretty limited partnership they had with Dylan Mulvaney, um, you know, both in terms of people there was backlash against the the partnership itself. There was backlash to how um Anheuser-Busch handled the backlash. And I think, you know, it's hard to say the latest because things move so quickly, but um, (laughs) uh, pretty recently, Governor uh, Ron DeSantis, he uh, suggested that the Bud Light parent company, so as Anheuser-Busch, breached its legal duties um, that it owed to shareholders by uh, what he called radical social ideologies in association with them. So that's sort of where he stands. He's encouraging uh, potentially legal action against the company for, oh. um, you know, not properly shepherding the funds that mm. wow. um, you know, pension funds. So it remains to be seen how much can be done legally to that end. Um, but we do see. Wow, that's a little scary to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. I think you've spoken about, uh, I believe in previous shows, the kind of uh, political involvement that has happened with uh, yes. these conflicts. I think the way it kind of used to be is there would be a campaign that a company would have, and then you would have a, some backlash from consumers, and you might have some uh, counter backlash. So, in response to the boycott, there may be a boycott, and things sort of, yes, yes, you know, they play out as long as they do, and then often they pass. And I think what's we've been seeing a little bit differently here, yes, with Target is that there is. Um, political leaders are, are getting involved in kind of taking a position yes. and that's really the sort of drawing things out. So they've seen sales fall. They are trying yep. to, to kind of move away, move to a more mainstream marketing campaign. Um, they're trying to support their distributors to, to kind of carry them through. So it's an evolving situation and we'll see what happens next. Yeah. I think it's also fascinating, uh, Danielle, because it's uh, it, it, I'm aware of at least one of these alternatives. So so it, it's being called, Barbara, the parallel economy. So there is a new there's a new format. There's a new platform out called Public Square. And it's basically in response to all of this, quote, uh, woke branding and woke marketing strategy. And basically it's it's a platform for all of the brands that want to be anti-woke where they can be curated. And if you want a brand that's quote patriotic, this public square platform that just went public, I think last week is actually promoting these alternative brands uh, you know, for those people who would decide that, you know what, we don't want to be in, we don't want to be associated at all with these, with these woke brands and this woke ideology. Oh. And so it's interesting because the market is actually course correcting and opening up to the, Hey, if you want this other sub, sort of ideological point of view, here are your brands. <laughs> so oh, it's, it's, wow. it's, it's really, really interesting to Danielle's point, this notion that, you know, you have this purpose driven marketing and ideological points of view are now becoming a, a part of this market correction, if you will, a part of the market equilibrium. And now people just choose, choose whatever you want. If you don't care, stay out of it. If you want to choose a brand that's on one of these different uh, you know, sides of the spectrum, you can do that. It's all up to you. 
oh my god like i just want to drink you know know, can i just have a beer can i just have can i just have the the chips do i have to make a political statement yeah tv and eat chips you know yeah 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 but what what is your perspective danielle in terms of the the, how how consumers are reacting to this in, in your work what are you reporting? Are, are is this a big deal? Are they are they really expressing a lot of uh, you know tension and anxiety about being able to choose brands that align with the ideological points of view, or do they just don't care? What are you finding? That's a great question. I think there's a little bit of both. You know, I think uh, consumers, especially younger consumers, are really interested in uh, shopping from brands that align with their values, that you know where they feel seen and represented. Um, one interesting thing that actually um, was just new from this morning, um, Molson Coors reported their quarterly earnings. They own uh, Miller Lite and Coors Light. They're the brewer. And they said that they've had like an amazing quarter. I think as this is from my colleague, single best quarter of revenue since 2005. So, it, you know, it's kind of interesting because I think there is there is kind of this new um, little cottage industry of, I think, um, new brands emerging that are saying, you know, we're not this, we're this. And there's, um, there are new options for people who are, like you were saying, very interested in uh, brands that represent their own values. But I think we're also just seeing the other mainstream brands see a boost in sales as people, you know, walk down the grocery aisle and they say, oh, well, I'm, I'm avoiding Bud Light for XYZ reason. I'm just going to reach for the Miller Light or the Cross Light. So we are seeing uh, lifts in other parts of the mainstream mm, market. And I don't know that people are necessarily going into detail about, you know, those companies ad campaigns and brand partnerships. I think they're probably just kind of diverting their spending in a way. Yeah, that's interesting because like if you're going, oh my God, I have to make all these decisions. Is there just a brand that doesn't care? To your point, Barbara, too much ideological choice. It's like, yeah, it's like I, I just don't need to deal with this today. I got a baby crying in the back room. Yeah, you know? yeah, like I yeah. just I could see like it goes too far and the pendulum swings the other way. I want brands that don't have any purpose, you know, they right, feel right, right. I'm just selling mm-hmm. what I need, mm-hmm. you know, and along those lines, I saw this headline that's making me very nervous that you wrote like America is falling out of love with ice cream. Oh, what dear. The hell? Like, that's just not I haven't gotten on that bandwagon. That, that's not the America I want to live in. <laughs> I know that was a tough one for me too. Personally. <laughs> um, you know, so that story really, um, you know, I saw that per capita consumption of ice cream as tracked by the USDA um, in 2021 was about 12 pounds per person. In 1986, it was 18 pounds per person. And it peaked, I think, in the 40s. So it's not that you know, Americans still love ice cream. It's just, okay, good. <laughs> I no, mean, I, I can't speak for everyone. But. That's right. Because I, I pledge to single-handedly raise that standard. I will do it myself. If no one else will step up to the challenge, I will do it, but go ahead. Yeah. But, but it is a, it's a, you know, that's a pretty significant drop um, from 1986 to 2021 in terms of just how much ice cream people eat. And and when I started reporting into the story, I learned about this sort of fascinating history that America has had with ice cream, you know, during prohibition, some brewers turned to ice cream and that was a big bump to the industry. And then during World War II, it was kind of seen as a morale booster for troops. So you had some 
um, you know, there was an ice cream barge that was making and distributing ice cream. Oh, and wow. gravy. So yeah, so it was a really fun story just to learn about how, you know, there was, it was really kind of a, a national food for a while. And then um, over the years, we've sort yeah. of moved away from that. And also there's been such an explosion of options in the dessert aisle and the frozen dessert aisle, just in general, people have so much more food yeah. to choose from. And also there's been this trend of premiumization. So, you know, people are still spending a fair amount on ice cream. They're just eating less. So it could be that people are either watching their weight or their health or whatever, but it could also be that it's just become a, a kind of more of a splurge, even financially, mm. especially recently with inflation. So, um, mm. so it is, you know, it has been a reduction in terms of consumption. There is still, of course, plenty of ice cream. So (laughs) ice cream is one of these topics that's dear to my heart. So I follow it a lot. You're right. There's a lot of this premium branding, like even in Philadelphia, we've seen a lot of these little special ice cream stores um, open up and it's like $5 for a cone or $10 for a cone. I don't know. It's like incredibly expensive. And yet the lines are out the block. So like, there's definitely that trend to making it more of an in occasion in certain ways, like let's mm. go out for a very expensive ice cream cone. Yeah. The other thing that you mentioned that's interesting, you know, you mentioned in the same breath, this idea of ice cream and alcohol. It's mm. funny that you put that together because they both have, you know, alcohol has sugar content and so does ice cream. And we're seeing this um, sober movement around, among mm. the younger people, you know, and so like I would actually have thought ice cream was going up because mm. as people are dr- drinking less alcohol, they're looking for vice somewhere else. And maybe ice cream's ready to to uh, to stand up and take take that. Uh, Interesting. Mm-hmm. Have you written anything about the sober movement? I, I don't see it in your current story, so I don't um, know. But, like, not- I, interesting not recently but i have in the past and um that is a really interesting movement and there has been just a lot it's so many more options for people who are not drinking for whatever reason um but do want to kind of participate in basically people who want to go to a bar have a drink don't want to order you know something that you know they want to order something fun that feels like it's on the menu you know on the drinks menu and i think that there are a lot more places now offering mocktails. There are a lot more companies making non-alcoholic spirits. There are a lot more beers making non-alcoholic beers. So yeah, we've done uh, some stories on that. It's pretty interesting. Well, Danielle, thank you so much for joining us today. And where can our listeners go to keep up with you? Uh, You can read my stories on CNN.com. I write for the business site and um, that's really the best place for me. Um, That's all we have time for today. We're here every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern time and we replay our show several times throughout the week. 